0: Next on Lectures in History, Colorado College professor Amy Kohout teaches a class on nuclear weapons testing in the continental U.S. in the 1950s and 60s and how it impacted the environment. She describes scientific tests done to measure the impact on humans, protests against nuclear testing, and current debates over where to store nuclear waste. Her class is about an hour. Good morning. morning. I like that. Um, Today, we're going to continue our investigation of American environmental history through the lens of nuclear testing. So yesterday, of course, we had our first conversation about Rebecca Solnit's Savage Dreams, a journey into the hidden wars of the American West, which has this really interesting structure that's not at all chronological. And I'm really pleased with the amount of ground we covered during our discussion of the first half of her project, which is loosely centered on the Nevada test site, but moves back and forth to also engage things like indigenous homelands, the study of physics before and after World War II, the history of the test site itself, as well as anti-nuclear activism in the 80s and early 90s. So today I'm going to go back over part of what Solnit explores, as well as try to give you a little more depth and context for what we might call one of Solnit's lines of convergence. We're going to look at mid-20th century citizen science projects, draw on what we've been studying about aesthetics and environmental history to examine different framings of the Nevada test site, and close by thinking about questions of risk and scale in our contemporary moment. But first, by way of getting us into the proper mindset, uh, I wanted to introduce you to Bert the Turtle on the off chance that you haven't met him before. Dum-dum,
3: deedle-dum-dum, deedle-dum-dum, deedle-dum-dum. There was a turtle by the name of Bert Bert, the turtle was very alert, when danger threatened him, he never got hurt, he knew just what to do, he duck and cover,
4: duck and cover, he did what we all must learn to do, you and you, and you, and you,
5: and you. duck and cover. Sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do
1: the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover.
0: This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with the Safety Commission of the National Education Association. Produced by Archer Productions, Incorporated. Hey, Bert, come on out and meet all these nice people, please? Alright, we really can't blame you. You see, Bert is a very, very careful fellow. When there's danger, this is the way he keeps from being hurt. Sometimes, it even saves his life. That's why these children are practicing. Alright, so why were we chuckling? It's so corny. It's corny, okay. Um, so. Duck and cover, right? Which Bert stars in, right? Uh, it's a 1951 civil defense film shown to school children across the nation in the 50s. Um, so let's jump right in. Why is Bert ducking and covering? Threat
3: of nuclear war.
0: Threat of nuclear war. Okay, it seems, yeah.
3: <laughs> it seems a pretty ineffectual strategy to me.
0: But fair enough. You know,
3: I'm on the outside.
0: <laughs> Maybe his shell is very sturdy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are your- uh, so this is uh, a 1951 film. Okay. Yeah. Any other observations about about Bert, what he's doing, where the danger is?
5: It's pretty like. And I, I feel like that's really sending a message to children, like with a cartoon like turtle, something that they can relate to. They probably see in their lives like as a toy or a stuffed animal or a pet. So yeah, using, Bert's friendly. Like, yeah, using his imagery to portray something like a lot darker. Um, Really interesting.
0: So, we've got uh, Clara sharing with us that this is about the threat, an external threat. Where is the threat coming from in the 1950s? Yeah, Evan?
1: Yeah, well, I was just going to say the threat is a stick of dynamite and not like an actual nuclear (coughs) bomb, which is what's implied.
0: Burt's threat is dynamite. Uh, The threat for children in this era? (laughs) Nuclear war from the Soviet Union. Okay, so. Often when we think about the nuclear age, right, especially at the very beginning of it, we think about these external threats to the American people and to the American way of life. But that framing of threats from without doesn't have much to say about the domestic dangers or risks of American nuclear capability, so that's what we're going to focus on today. Um, I'm going to offer you a couple of examples that center on concerns about American nuclear projects, and it's my hope that by looking at each of these cases in turn, we'll be able to think together about some of the larger questions that shaped the ways Americans understood their relationships with their environments, their government, and with science during the Cold War. So the first case that I want to talk about today has to do with the tooth fairy. Um, And more than 250,000 teeth that were sent by children to someone other than the tooth fairy in the late 50s and early 60s. So my story begins in 1958 when a Danish scientist wrote an article that suggested that there could be a way to study the radiation absorbed by the human body, um, which had been a bit of a puzzle. Bone samples had been one of the ways that Um, Scientists have been thinking about measuring the uptake of strontium-90, which is a radioactive isotope that behaves a lot like calcium. But bone samples are sort of hard to get, as you might imagine, Um, and they're hard hard to get enough of for a comprehensive study. So this Danish scientist suggested that baby teeth, which as I'm sure you experienced, fall out naturally at a certain age, and they could be a way to measure the uptake of strontium-90. Right? Um, and so the idea was that if you could gather enough baby teeth, you could get a very clear picture of the radiation that human bodies had been exposed to during the period that the teeth were anchored in children's mouths. Right? So this seems pretty novel. Um, so I want to pause for a second and just tell you where this story comes from. Two colleagues of mine from grad school, um, women named Caroline Jack and Stephanie Steinhardt, researched this story for an article that they published uh, in a journal called The Appendix. Um, Caroline's a postdoc with Data and Society in New York, and Stephanie teaches at Michigan State. And I think that um, it's sometimes easy to think that all these things we learn in history class are established fact or long agreed upon historical interpretation. Um, So I just want to flag for you that this is pretty recent work. This piece came out in 2014, and it was done by junior scholars who published um, this stuff when they were in grad school, which I think is pretty exciting. Okay, so back to baby teeth. So This Danish scientist had suggested an interesting possibility for studying exposure to radiation using children's teeth. And during the 50s, we had scientists, academics, and public health officials starting to express some concern, Um, especially because we see the frequency of of nuclear testing increasing with tests in both the Pacific and the American West. So concerns had already been raised about the relationship between food and fallout. Um, And as you can see, this is a a sort of representation of the St. Louis milkshed. and uh, the U.S. Public Health Service started a study um, in what they called five different milk sheds to look at the concentration of strontium-90 in milk. So remember, if it functions like calcium, right, we've all seen the milk commercials, um, milk is a good place to look to understand how this isotope is functioning. And when they looked, they were able to measure an increased presence of strontium-90 for the period that they were studying. But the good news, according to their initial study, was that even if a person drank milk with this increased amount of strontium-90 in it, they'd be well under what was understood to be the safety threshold for this isotope. So here's where it gets interesting. Despite these findings, some people were questioning the way that the government was conceptualizing risk, especially as it related to fallout and exposure to radiation. That their models for what counted as harmful or what counted as safe weren't accurate. So as we've covered, not a scientist, right? Um, But let me attempt to explain this. So public health and other officials were operating under a nonlinear threshold model, which means that so long as you are exposed to less than wherever the threshold is, you're fine, whether it's way down here or you're right under the threshold. So long as your exposure doesn't reach that number, it's understood that everything is going to be fine for you. but others weren't so sure about that, and they wondered if a linear model, where sort of steadily increasing exposure mapped onto increasing health risks, made more sense. Um, and these concerns about fallout and risk were, motivated by, um, were motivating factors for a petition signed by over 9,000 scientists asking the government to stop atomic weapons testing. And two of the scientists um, were at WashU in St. Louis, <coughs> and they helped write this petition, and then they formed a local group. called the Greater St. Louis Citizens Committee for Nuclear Information, or CNI. And they focused on awareness raising, um, especially surrounding um, fallout and nuclear testing. Um, And they also began something called the Baby Tooth Survey uh, in 1958. So I know you can't read this, but this is like a founding document that sort of says the purpose. Why baby teeth? How is this going to work? And so their goal was to gather 50,000 teeth a year, and to do that they needed a team. They did all sorts of outreach, and they weren't just reaching out to other scientists. They were talking to teachers, they were talking to dentists, they were talking to librarians. They got local radio stations to help out. They threw community parties. They made forms like this available for submitting your teeth in department stores as well as dental offices. Um, And Caroline and Stephanie found reports that said children could mail their letters and teeth in envelopes addressed only to... Tooth Fairy, comma St. Louis, and the letter would wind up at the office of the Baby Tooth Survey, right? This sounds like sending letters to the North Pole. Um, so maybe I should also mention that my dad is an orthodontist, so I grew up around a lot of teeth, and I find this story particularly fascinating. So I have a couple of examples from um, this project that Caroline and Stephanie worked on to show you, and so, why, are, why are we laughing? Dear science, science, right? Um, So some of the letters are addressed to the tooth fairy, but my favorite is a letter like this one that reads, Dear science. Um, And children who sent their teeth to this survey would get a button that said, I gave my tooth to science. Right, so um, it's not totally clear how much these children understood about what their teeth were helping science to determine, but I love this idea of sort of supplanting the image of the tooth fairy with the idea of... uh, some nebulous version of science, right? Um, And so let me tell you a little bit about what happens with the teeth. Once the teeth arrive at CNI, the tooth went into a numbered envelope and the form from the donor became its information card, right? Dentists evaluated each tooth. They made notes on it. You can see that there's some basic data um, about the tooth and its owner, right? But there are also some Uh, assessment here at the bottom from a dental professional. Um, And then uh, it was filed into a box by year, and sample lots of teeth were organized um, year by year, and then sent to an isotope lab that I think was in New Jersey for study, and the results were compared with evaluations of things like cow milk, breast milk, and even analyses um, of teeth and bones from stillborn children. So what did the survey, survey find out? So the first findings are shared in 1961. And the first thing that seems key to know about this is that the survey confirms that yes, teeth will work as a reliable measure for the uptake of strontium-90. Right, This is why they're doing some of that comparative stuff to say, can we use this as a reasonable me- measurement? And the survey also produced findings that suggested that strontium-90 levels for children born in the early 50s in 1951 were lower than the levels for children born in 1954. Right? So for In order to study these teeth, you have to know the age of the child so you can map this onto what kind of exposure they might have um, experienced based on things that we are aware of happening in other parts of the country, right? Um, So even though these results are drawn only from teeth collected in St. Louis, American politicians paid attention. Um, And apparently JFK was interested in this study and even called um, Dr. Louise Reese, who wrote the initial report, to talk about the results. JFK signs the partial nuclear test ban treaty in 1963, not long after a series of congressional hearings on fallout at which testimony about the baby tooth survey was presented. So this survey runs until 1970. I like this membership, membership card a lot. Um, the survey runs until 1970 and results demonstrate that um, the strontium 90 levels in children's teeth reached record highs in the mid 1960s. Some of the levels, just to give you a sense of the scope and scale here, were as much as 50 times higher than levels detected in the 1950s. All right, so why am I spending all this time talking to you about baby teeth? Aside from the fact that I think teeth are really interesting. Um, What does this have to do with the environmental history of nuclear America? Well, for starters, this story isn't the story we typically tell about nuclear fear. Often we're focused on external threats, on destruction coming from without, on the fallout we might be exposed to after an enemy attack, right? but this is an example where the danger is coming from inside the house. right? Um, and here, this is one of my favorite points that um, Caroline and Stephanie make in their analysis of the baby tooth survey, and it's that fallout is ordinary. It gets into children's bodies as parts of their daily lives. It isn't the result of exposure that comes from nuclear war. It's part of what it means to live in the modern world. right? It comes from just testing. I wonder, maybe those of you in the front have a better um, angle on the image at the top of this um, sort of magazine coverage of the survey, but there's a figure here sort of bathed in light next to this sleeping child in a bed, and can anybody who's closer to the image sort of see what's going on here?
1: It's like a scientist, um, and it looks like he has a tooth and then he left money or like what used to be a button. Under the child's pillow, like a tooth fairy.
0: So he looks like a scientist. Does he have some features that are not normally expected of scientists? He's got wings, right? So we've got not just the replacement of the tooth fairy um, by scientists, but we have this like combination image, right? That somehow the work that this scientist tooth fairy is doing, um, you know, can replace that role in children's imaginations in St. Louis. I find this totally fascinating and also a little bit charming. Um, So I want us to hold on to this idea of sort of follow it as ordinary as testing um, itself rather than the fear of sort of threats from without um, being a really important factor for sort of understanding the relationship between bodies and landscapes and governments and science right in this period. Um, And I want to sort of shift gears to a second case right and Trace that radiation backwards from St. Louis, from the milkshed, from the Baby Tooth Survey, to the site of nuclear testing within the Mountain West, right? The Nevada Test Site, where 928 tests are conducted during the period 1951 to 1992. Um, so, Rebecca Solnit, right, who you've been reading, tells us the history of the Nevada Test Site, a 1,350 square mile chunk of Nevada, part of the Nellis Air Force Range. Um, But I thought it might be useful for us to review this briefly since she sort of breaks it up across that first chapter of the book and then sort of returns to it regularly across that whole chunk of 200 pages you read over the weekend. Um, So the land that becomes Nellis Air Force Range is removed from the public domain in 1941. The test site gets established in 1951 and we get the first nuclear test occurring there that January. In 2010, the Nevada test site is actually renamed the Nevada National Security Site um, which has the acronym N2S2 um, which the government said more accurately reflected the site's current mission and as we sort of think our way through sort of that evolution of the history of both atmospheric and underground testing right thinking about how that sort of mission changes I think it's going to be something we'll be paying attention to. Um, so that's one story we could tell to sort of trace the provenance of the land that becomes the test site. But Solnet is all about looking at competing arguments and competing narratives and competing stories right. So she also tells us, uh, or offers us another framing, right? She tells us a different story. And it's one that goes back far earlier and looks at Nevada as New Segovia, the Western Shoshone name for their homeland, which maps onto the land of the Nevada test site. So I know that both of these images are uh, abstract in different ways, but that big sort of yellow swath, right? This is Western Shoshone uh, homeland, and can you see where the test site's located? Sort of right in the lower third on the Nevada side? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, okay, so Solnit goes back to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ends the Mexican American War and which honored sort of prior ownership, which you read about. The Treaty of Ruby Valley in 1863 is signed between the United States and the Western Shoshone, but the terms aren't honored. The Western Shoshone never sold their land, they were never conquered in battle, and many Western Shoshone people continued the work of resistance and survivance in the face of broken treaties and promises. A resistance that ends up involving many Western Shosh- Shoshone activists in anti-nuclear efforts um, as well as in legal batter- battles over their land claims. So, as we talked about in one of our small group discussions yesterday, the Indian Claims Commission did determine that Western Shoshone lands had been taken from them. How did they describe that process? You guys remember?
1: An encroachment.
0: Yeah, gradual encroachment was what the, the Indian Claims Commission determined um, as a result of U.S. settlement. Um, and they um, determined that the Western Shoshone should receive the 1872 price for that land, which we talked about a little bit yesterday. Um, but some Western Shoshone people insisted that the land had never been sold and that they shouldn't be forced to take payment. This case uh, and different sort of iterations of it um, are you know, brought to the courts, and one of these cases goes to the Supreme Court, um, and the Western Shoshone lost. Um, and I want to add that 10 years after Solnit wrote the book that we're reading, in 2004, our President George W. Bush signed the Western Shoshone Land Claims Distribution Act, which was uh, a bill that was uh, designed to release the funds that had been held in trust to pay the nation for the land that had been taken, again, that 1872 price sort of uh, tracked forward for, for interest. right? So there's disagreement over taking the money. Some Western Shoshone people want to take it because it seemed unrealistic that they'd get the actual land back and the money could be useful. Others refused. Um, and I want to highlight this because we've been looking at the intertwined history of American federal land and the dispossession of native peoples. And I just want to make clear that this history is ongoing. right? 2004 is pretty recent. Uh, and that history doesn't stop there. So we've been talking a little bit about competing worldviews about different ways of making meaning out of nature. And so now that we've looked at a couple of maps of the Nevada test site, I thought we could do some thinking about its landscape and build on the observations that Rebecca Solnit makes about how the desert is often characterized. So this is actually uh, from a May uh, 2017 sort of piece uh, about some things happening at the test site, so a pretty current image. Um, And I'm wondering what sort of Words does Solnit say have typically been used to describe the landscape of the test site? We started brainstorming a few of these yesterday, but maybe we can pick that up. Desolate. Desolate. Barren. Barren. Wasteland. Wasteland. Nothingness. Nothingness, yeah. We had some conversations about this notion of nothingness, right? Any others? Parched, maybe?
5: Scorched. Scorched,
0: yeah. What do you see when you look at this particular image? Do those descriptions seem to map onto this view of the test site?
1: No, not really. See plants like growing and you see snow on the mountains. So there's definitely, it's definitely like thriving enough that things can live there.
0: Totally. Any other observations? About this image?
1: Is that a lake on the right side? Very much.
0: I have no idea, actually. (laughs) (laughs) A mirage, perhaps? I'm not sure.
4: It's got a nice, lovely sign on it.
0: It does have a sign. (laughs) What does that sign say?
2: Caution no stopping zone, radioactive materials area. A stop is required, contact. Blackjack. Immediately for instructions?
0: Yep, so we're seeing sort of the layering of what we might imagine to be a natural landscape right, with a a particular kind of regulatory framework that I want to sort of think about here. Um, So we've got uh, Solnit suggesting that there are a couple of different ways that the desert has been constructed. This perspective of the desert as um, desolate, as empty, as a wasteland, whose perspective is that?
3: Western
0: settlers. Sure, Yep. Are there alternate framings, maybe that map onto what Beck sees in this image that we've also sort of encountered? Who might have a different framing for thinking about this landscape? The Western Shoshone, right? So recognizing that constructing a landscape as either empty or filled with abundance right, is in some ways a cultural framing. Um, This is something we've been thinking about, sort of what you see shapes what you do. so I want to show you another image. Um, this is an image of the north end of Yucca Flat. Um, what do you see in this image? Craters. Lots of craters.
2: Is that snow, or nuclear fallout? <laughs> <laughs> or just dust?
0: I think There's neither. Just I think <laughs> is perhaps. Uh, and, and maybe we're seeing the brightness uh, of the light. But the question is instructive, right? So, Atomic Energy Commission documents describe this land as virtually uninhabited, right? We talked a little bit about uh, that kind of framing, and uh, an AEC official was quoted as calling it, quote, a good place to throw used razor blades. Um, for real. Uh, so this raises lots of questions about the government's sense of its own obligation to the people who lived and continue to live in the Great Basin, right? So we've looked, we've looked a little bit at the rhetorical framing of the test site itself, and I'd like to also think about the language of testing, right? Um, this is something you all can help me with since you've read how Solnit approaches these questions, and I thought we would look um, at some images that sort of combine tests themselves with uh, a view of the landscape. Um, And from there, we're going to think a little bit about one strand of activism that connects to an earlier case we've considered that I think might have some resonances with the Baby Tooth Survey. Um, But before we look at some images of testing, I want to show you a visualization that a Japanese artist named Isao Hashimoto made that depicts all of the nuclear testing that occurred between 1945 and 1998. Did we have time to take a 14 minute break from Solnit to watch the whole thing last night? Cool. Okay, so I'm going to show you just a really small snippet. And I'm gonna fast forward us here to roughly 1960-ish. Alright, so that's just what, like two years and a couple of months worth of a process we've been thinking about as stretching across a much broader period of time. Um, Reactions to this? I know we're just looking at one minute, but you encountered the full sort of 14-minute arc last night. What did you think when you saw this?
2: I thought it was pretty interesting um, how, like, as soon as one kind of started, then you would get the feedback on the other side of the world, and then it would be kind of like a competition to see who can do more testing and progress
1: further?
0: Yeah, this is not happening in isolation. Yeah. There's, a, there's a conversation happening here. Yeah, Ben. Yeah.
1: I was also curious about, um, I think Great Britain had done nuclear testing in Nevada, mm-hmm. and I was wondering what the deal was with that.
0: Yeah, there, there are a couple of sort of outliers, right? And um, there are some really detailed lists of sort of the purposes for each series and then each detonation within a series, and some of them are sort of collaborative. Uh, investigations. I can point you to more on that if you want to know. Yeah, Charlie. Um,
2: it sort of reminded me of that uh, Barbara Solna was talking about rehearsing the end of the war and how sort of ridiculous it was that in preparation for nuclear fallout we were just bombing ourselves continuously. Yeah. Um, which seems a little ironic.
0: Mm-hmm. Seeing it played out on a place, right, uh, I think makes that point even more clear. And Charlie, you have anticipated my next question, so that's awesome. Other reactions or responses to this? Yeah, uh, Noah and then Billy.
4: Um, yeah, I think it's just interesting where it's happening. Yeah. They're kind of, for each respective um, country that's doing it, they're like... I don't know how to say it, it's like kind of lands where they don't necessarily care about the people as much so for France it was in the Sahara so it was kind of outside part of their um, African Empire, what was their African Empire for the USSR it was in I, th- I think Kazakhstan mm-hmm. um, so away from their center of the population and then for us it's in the middle of the desert in Nevada.
0: Yeah, and where else is it for us? Yeah. The Pacific, right? So um, we're focusing mostly on Nevada, right? But thinking about sort of the politics and the power structures and sort of the imperial dynamics here that you're pointing to, right? This is not something that's happening uh, in the center of the state, right? It's happening in a place that is deemed to be uh, an acceptable uh, test site. Uh, We have Solnit when when we're thinking about the MX missile project, right? Talking about the acceptability of the Great Basin as a national sacrifice zone, right? So, thinking about the politics of what gets to happen in what spaces seems really important here. Other observations or reactions to this film. Yeah, like I thought it was interesting
5: that there are at least for the United States and for the USSR at this point like more than one location where they're testing, and it um, kind of to Noah's point like why there are like so many sites that we want to like get ready and like test all of these bombs like hundreds and hundreds of um, bombs, and so like that is just interesting to me like why are there more than one test site? And what does that say about like the frequency of like um, the testing that's happening, and then why we have so many?
0: Uh, yeah, maybe supports. it says something about like what the tests are for, right? Right, and, yeah. and that's something I hope we'll think a little bit more about.
3: Uh, yeah, I thought the intimidation tactics were very plain and mm. sort of how they, they were very responsorial detonations. I actually was really taken with the the idea of scale and how striking it was to have the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki just put in this line of succession where all of a sudden all the little bleeps on the screen are just proliferating out of control that was what really struck me of thinking exactly how devastating each of those blasts was to the environment.
0: Yeah so this this speaks to this broader question of narrative that we've been thinking about right? if we think about uh, bombs that are deployed in a military context in isolation, right, we have a particular narrative. But when we position those in a long arc of tests, right, that are functionally, right, uh, Charlie used Solnit's phrasing of sort of rehearsing the end of the world, how does that change our understanding of what's going on here? And so can we talk a little bit more about that word test that... uh, is used here. I mean, Solnit has a particular reading or interpretation of like why she doesn't like that word, why she picks rehearsal, but I wonder if we can sort of work that out a little bit more. Yeah, Evan.
1: Well, just a clarification on the video. Is it true? I think it shows there's only one test that happens before the bombs dropped in Japan and then all the other tests occur after.
0: Yeah, so that first test is is when or where. (laughs) New Mexico Mexico, right that's the Trinity test right Right. Um, and yeah so thinking again about that narrative and and sort of what the story looks like depending on where we start it and stop it it's really powerful so what about this word test
2: she said it was kind of wrong because it implies that it's sort of a scientific process with expected results Mm. and that really we were just sort of throwing nuclear bombs at the ground trying to not so much get results but sort of show off what we could do and then sort of rehearse for the end of the world so sort of see what sort of effects we could mitigate and what other things we could do to um, help ourselves avoid the fallout.
0: Yeah, so this isn't just about seeing if they work, right? There are a lot of other questions that people have. And this idea of like rehearsing implies a kind of performance, right? Which a couple of you have sort of mentioned, right? That there are a lot of different sort of motivations perhaps that are tangled together in terms of what the impact both sort of materially on the landscape, but also on this sort of uh, global political scale, right? Yeah, Ben. It's
1: just like Birth the Turtle.
0: It's just like Birth the Turtle? How is it just like Birth the Turtle?
1: Just having all the kids rehearse for ducking and covering when the bombs come mm-hmm. inevitably uh, in all the rest of the U.S.
0: So, a really different kind of rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fascinating connection. Yeah, Sam. Yeah, I've got her quote um, where it says, for rehearsal, we lack an audience but contains all the actions and actors. Is that really interesting? that, like
5: just because people like the majority of people in the United States may not really be like aware of what's going on doesn't mean that there's not still like victims of um, that testing.
0: Yeah, so thinking a little bit about the material impacts of this thing that maybe uh, feels a little bit more like an idea until you sort of see it played out. Uh, on the landscape? Yeah, I I really appreciate that. This idea that a test is still what what Solnit calls a full-scale explosion in the real world and how to sort of make sense of that. Um, So in terms of thinking about this as a rehearsal or as a performance, right? I I do want to note that um, there are lots of times when people are invited to see these tests. Um, And I'm gonna get back to my slideshow here so I can show you. Oh, first. I wanna show you, this is a a modified sort of USGS map that just sort of shows where um, more specifically mapped onto sort of the um, layout of the test site these tests are happening right in that uh, Isao Hashimoto um, uh, visualization, right? It's hard to see sort of where in Nevada, you just get a sense that it's Nevada, but um, I'm happy to put this up on our Canvas site if you wanna look in more detail sort of at these clusters. Um, But then I wanted to sort of show you that that folks are invited to look, right? So sometimes these are other military officials, sometimes these are reporters, um, and you can certainly fall into an internet hole um, looking at all of the images of other people looking at tests. Um, And in some ways, uh, this sort of feeds nicely into this conversation we've been having over the course of our class about this notion of the sublime, right? Right? we've been thinking with the sublime for a while now, and last week we sort of built on our uh, sense of sort of sublime natural landscapes by thinking about this notion of the technological sublime right This is something um, that a historian of science and technology named David Nye has talked about um, so of course, the sublime that we began with right is a sublime that comes from you know sort of romanticism. It helps to reframe dramatic, powerful, intense landscapes from sort of scary to awe inspiring Try to think about that space between i don't want to be anywhere near that to this creates a feeling of sort of terribleness and awe and power that i do want to encounter so when we think of the sublime we think of the scale of the grand canyon we might think of the enormity and the power of niagara falls maybe the view from the top of a colorado 14er right Um, and we might not use that word sublime to describe that feeling uh, as much anymore but these cultural framings of sort of the literal awesomeness of nature are still with us Right, And so last week when we were thinking a little bit about the early 20th century, um, we considered this notion of the sublime or the technological sublime in the context of the Hoover Dam, right? Thinking about these uh, great feats of American engineering, this human-made structure that's worth marveling at. Um, and this is, a, is an idea that um, folks have also applied to viewing a nuclear test, right? Which is something that a lot of people did as, as part of their work at the test site or at any of the locations in the Pacific where the US conducted nuclear testing. And there are some really fascinating oral histories that have been taken from folks who viewed um, tests in both, uh, at both the test site and in the Pacific um, that have been sort of recorded both in video and audio and transcripts, if um, you're interested to dig into those sort of first hand accounts. But I thought we might look at a couple of images um, taken by government officials, right, which puts these in the public domain, um, from tests detonated at the Nevada test site. So I'm looking for observations. Can we read this landscape a little bit? And I've got, I've got this caption down at the bottom here, but this is one of the tests in this series called Operation Plumb and it happens to be the, the test Priscilla. Yeah, Ben.
1: Uh, I noticed something about the, the last slide.
0: All right, give it just
5: to us. That
1: the, uh, it says about a proving ground mm. on the sign, which I just kind of thought was a more accurate reflection on like, kind of a rehearsal than like N2S2 or yeah. like test site, just kind of to map more like kind of those, the, the idea behind rehearsal kind of more accurately onto the, onto the area.
0: For sure, right, and, and thinking about naming and what sorts of labels get placed onto landscapes is something we've been, we've been uh, talking through as well. Um, and then about a proving ground, this is actually the name that, that sort of predates the test site, right, so thinking about that relationship between uh, proving and performance is really interesting. Thanks for that, Ben. All right, talk to me about Priscilla. What do you see here? Yeah, Micah.
5: Yeah, I mean, it just dwarfs completely the mountains in the background, um, and compared to like a lot of the other photos, especially the paintings that we were looking at last week, mm-hmm. um, where you have sort of the natural landscape dwarfing the human aspect of it. It's the opposite of this now. Um, I think that really speaks to what we were just talking about with the technological sublime and just like the domination completely of nature totally something like this
0: yeah yeah that that inversion of scale is so fascinating right what else
2: it's incredibly bright too compared to the background i mean i'm not sure if it's at night during or during the day but i mean it's so much brighter than either the sun or the darkness around it
0: yeah we've been thinking about the role of light in some of those early american landscape paintings too right yeah Henry.
4: Solnit said that that was a particularly dirty bomb. What does that what does that mean?
0: Mm. So um, that's a good question. I don't have handy how many kilotons of an explosion this is, right? but in terms of thinking about um, weather conditions, thinking about um, the height of the explosion, um, these are variables that people are playing with a lot as they're thinking about the relative effectiveness or impact of these different detonations. Um, and so it's my sense that changing those variables changes the, the reach um, of, of something like this. Um, oh yeah, go ahead.
3: Yeah, I remember that same passage about how dirty Priscilla was and that it, it affected a lot of the communities around it and even you know, hundreds of miles away and that sort of just brings to mind the idea of how sublimity changes as soon as it's technological because mm-hmm. in the romantic sense it's like the threat and the violence and the terror were all episodic and they were all part of that moment. But here, the danger associated with the atomic bomb doesn't just die away in the moment of awe, it continues afterwards. Yeah. For generations and hundreds of thousands of years. So I thought that was interesting.
0: This makes you think a little bit about sort of these ideas of visibility and invisibility. Do you need to be able to see the sublime, right? How, in what ways do, does it change in sort of an aesthetic framing if we're also talking about the invisible, right? Yeah, Jake. They
1: talk a lot about it
2: on page 19 in Solnit, but this is also the one where they did the testing on pigs, um, Mm -hmm. and there was a huge outcry over that because they died sort of very needlessly and very painfully, and it suddenly brought all these ethical questions about nuclear testing and whether or not we should continue doing it, or at least on live animals or live beings.
0: For sure. Yeah. and Jake, you can be my volunteer, or someone else can be my volunteer, I'm glad you pointed us to page 19 because here we get one of those first-hand accounts. Um, Marine Lieutenant Thomas Saffer offers a description of what it felt like to to witness Priscilla, and I'm, I'm wondering if I can have a volunteer to read that description. Someone with a big loud voice. Noah, Noah awesome. All right, give us, give us one, one second here. <laughs>
4: Um, a thunderous rumble like the sound of a thousands of thousands of stampeding cattle passed directly overhead, pounding the trench line. Accompanying the roar was an intense pressure that pushed me downward. The shockwave was traveling at nearly 400 miles per hour, pushed toward us by the immense en- energy of the explosion. The earth began to gyrate violently and I could not control my body. Overcome by fear, I opened my eyes. I saw that I was being showered with dust, dirt, rocks, and debris so thick that I could not see four feet in front of me. A light many times brighter than the sun penetrated the thick dust, and I imagined that some evil force was attempting to swallow my body and soul. The metallic taste in my mouth was foul, would not go away.
0: Thanks, Noah. So does that sound like a sublime encounter? It's, it's powerful, it's terrible, right? It's uh, There's there's this sort of dynamic of scale we've been thinking about. Um, and this is one of many sort of accounts of sort of the witnessing of something like this. Um, I want to show you another example. So this is Priscilla. What do you see here? It
2: looks like the ground is on fire.
0: It does sort of look like that. I think it's I think it's not on fire, as I'm looking at it, but it looks like that.
2: (laughs) So it's so bright again? Uh, I mean, it was talking, the lieutenant was talking about how much brighter the bomb was in the sun, and you can again sort of see that across the ground and even in the cloud a little bit.
5: For sure.
3: It's a spectator event, presumably with civilians. I see some women on the
0: side. Yeah, sitting on benches, right? I'm just sort of leaning over here to look here. Yeah. There's a bunch
4: of resurrections and they also seem dangerously close with no protection at all. And I know she kind of talked about how vast the like, landscape is compared to what it looks like, but it still seems like they should probably be farther back than they are. I,
0: I totally have that sense looking at this image as well, <laughs> it seems scary. What else do you notice? Who's, we talked about the women on the left, who's on the right?
2: Military personnel, it looks like army
0: men. Yeah, so we've got an interesting sort of pairing or juxtaposition of this sort of spectator event, right? So, Operation Sunbeam, um, this is significant for being the last atmospheric nuclear test series before testing moves underground as a result of that 1963 partial nuclear test ban treaty. Um, and, and this has sort of come up a little bit in our conversation already, but um, why so much testing? Right. Um, there are a lot of people who see this process as necessary in this period, right, for science and also uh, for politics, right. If we're thinking about a Cold War context, and I want to highlight that testing isn't just seeing if something works, right. When you think that's what testing's for, it just seems overwhelming to look at that visualization. Um, there are a lot of scientists as well as military and government actors who want to know how things work and understand these bombs' specific impact on different kinds of materials and contexts. So there are a lot of scientific questions involved with testing um, that folks are trying to answer. And there are also those who see testing as an important signal of American power and capacity, right? This is that global frame for this process and the relationship between American and Soviet tests um, that you sort of see, you know, sort of mirrored almost as a conversation, right? Um, That's significant. So I have a couple of numbers here just to Um, put some of this in context, right? So at the Nevada test site, we get 928 tests between 1951 and 1992 detonated um, in Nevada. And early on, um, there were people who are not on board with the American nuclear program, right? There are people in addition to Western Shoshone activists who are citing the Treaty of Ruby Valley in 1863 as evidence for repeated trespass and dispossession um, by representatives of the United States, right? So I wanna offer one sort of small case Um, of sort of repeat um, activist work um, in response to concerns about American and Soviet testing. Um, This is an organization that Solnit mentions, but she doesn't necessarily um, dig into them uh, quite as much. And uh, they came up in one of our conversations yesterday, and the organization is called Women's Strike for Peace. Um, They're founded in 1961 in response to concerns about American and Soviet testing. Um, they aren't the only anti-nuclear group out there, as you've read, right? But I'm highlighting them because they're an example of women getting involved in American political life that might be a useful connection to some of the things we've studied about the progressive era. So they're a small part of Solnet's larger story about um, anti-nuclear activism more broadly at the test site. So I want us to think a little bit about what make, might make this group particularly interesting um, to us, given some of the other examples of environmental work that we've been looking at. Um, So Women Strike for Peace is an organization that's both traditional and radical, right? They're traditional in that they drew on ideas that connected women to nature, that positioned women as morally obligated to speak up about things that endangered themselves and endangered their children. Um, Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Sounds like the Audubon Society, where we were talking about
3: Birds on, hats. Birds
0: on hats, right, and talking about sort of elite women in the late 19th and early 20th century who are using that rhetoric of traditional womanhood to do something about uh, conservation efforts, right, to sort of say maybe we should get these bird bodies off of our hats. Um, all right, so I'm glad that you made that connection. This is one of the things uh, that seems to echo quite strongly for me. So we've got Women's Strike for Peace. uh sort of framed traditionally because of the way they're claiming that contamination is a women's issue, right, but also radical because of the ways that they're organized. So Solnit mentions that um, framing themselves as mothers, right, which they were, allowed them to articulate ideas that could be viewed as unpatriotic coming from other people, and over the course of their sort of anti-nuclear activism and anti-war activism, they visited Moscow and North Vietnam, and they said that as mothers, They were focused on children, on victims, not on political or military enemies. And they picketed the White House in 1962. They protested at the test site in 1963. Um, And they're often credited with helping to win the ratification of the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in 1963, right? So remember, this is the treaty that JFK signs, and it's a decision that seems to also have been influenced by the research from the Baby Tooth Survey, right? A citizen science project run by a lot of community members, including a lot of women in St. Louis. So perhaps this is another line of convergence. Um, So what does this treaty do? It bans nuclear weapons tests and nuclear explosions in the atmosphere, in outer space, which as somebody was talking about yesterday, was proposed, right? The rocket, uh, the Operation Orion test. Um, So atmosphere, outer space, and also underwater. And one of the things the signatories agreed to as a goal was, quote, an end to the contamination of man's environment by radioactive substances. So this treaty pushes nuclear tests out of sight, but it doesn't stop them. Um, They become harder to see because they move underground, um, and testing continues. And even underground testing doesn't stop... Concerns about things like fallout or exposure and radiation, um, and this is one of the things that that visualization, you know, sort of opens up in interesting ways because it doesn't necessarily differentiate between atmospheric and underground testing, right? So you see the same sort of um, image on the map reflecting the sort of size of the test, not where it occurs. So underground testing makes it seem like the potentially bad stuff is far away, but the process of detonation would generate a big cloud of gas and radiation, and sometimes the pressure from that would cause cracks in the Earth's surface. This is called venting, and there are plenty of examples of fallout from underground tests. So I'm going to show you an image from Bainberry, which is an underground nuclear test, right? And in some ways we see some very similar imagery to um, what we were sort of looking at on the aesthetic side um, with some of the atmospheric tests. Um, so this one had been buried 900 feet under the ground, and this is you know, sort of what was visible from the surface. So I do want to note that the activism uh, from groups like Women's Strike for Peace um, it fo- that was focused on nuclear testing, it continued alongside other efforts. So Women's Strike for Peace were also really active in protesting the war in Vietnam. Um, And some of the biggest protests surrounding nuclear testing occurred in the late 80s and early 90s. And this is what Solnit spent a lot of time sort of showing us by her presence uh, out at the test site, right? Big gatherings, teach-ins, marches, civil disobedience out in the desert near and at the Nevada test site. And these were organized primarily by two groups, which you've read a little bit about, American Peace Test and Nevada Desert Experience. Some of their protests brought 5,000 people out to the desert at a single time, including congresspeople and celebrities like Martin Sheen. Um, there were There were participants from veterans groups, native rights groups, peace activists, anarchists, scientists, international activists, and of course, these are the protest summers that Solnit writes about in her book. And here's just a 1987 LA Times image um, of sort of the scale of one of these protests. So eventually, we get uh, the proposed comprehensive test ban treaty. Right? It's officially opened for signature in 1996. Um, It's not yet ratified, but the goal is to have a legally binding ban. And the United States has signed this treaty, but it hasn't ratified the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty yet. Um, And some of you might have encountered a few people um, gathering signatures outside of Warner on Friday for a petition in support of U.S. ratification of this treaty. So um, I mention this only to highlight uh, that this history, some of which is so easy to think about, is really far away from us, right? especially when you see images of Bert the Turtle or uh, watch clips of school children ducking and covering under, under their desks, right? Like, this, this is actually still with us in a lot of important ways, and that might be a good way to transition to my sort of third story or case, which is the debate over what to do with nuclear waste from both military and civilian energy projects. Um, Anybody know what that is? I mean, there is a small caption, so it helps.
4: Yucca
0: it's Yucca Mountain. Right, so Solnit, again, tells us just a little bit about this project, but there's some more recent history to add to her story, so I thought we might revisit it um, as a way to sort of extend these through lines about risk, about scale, and about American relationships with science, nature, and the state. So what's Yucca Mountain? It's
2: a proposed site for all of the nuclear waste in the U.S.
0: Yeah, it's a proposed uh, site to become sort of the nation's high level repository for spent <coughs> nuclear waste. Um, and there's a lot to this story, and I'm you know, not at all going to do it justice, but sort of in broad strokes, right? Spent nuclear material needs a place to rest until it's no longer harmful. And the timeline for this process is a timeline that occurs in geologic rather than human time, right? I think this can be a really interesting way to continue these conversations about scale we've been having over the last uh, few weeks. Um, And sort of the story of this proposed facility at Yucca Mountain begins in 1987 with a bill that some people refer to as the Screw Nevada bill, um, which named Yucca Mountain as the desired site for storage. And in addition to all sorts of problems with you know sort of the the process itself with the politics of sending this kind of waste to Nevada, right? A place already treated as evidenced by the test site as empty, as barren, as maybe available because of its nothingness, right, for this kind of use. It matters to highlight that Yucca Mountain is also a spiritual resource, right, for Western Shoshone people, and much like the land of the test site, it's contested ground. So in 1992, Congress asked the EPA to set standards for how good the containment of material at Yucca Mountain should be, and the EPA said that in order to protect public health and groundwater, um, that that the facility should be envisioning a 10,000-year timescale, right, which seems like a very large amount of time to someone who (laughs) lives in this body. Um, The National Academy of Sciences said that that wasn't a good enough framework, that it should be stricter. Um, And there's a lot of political battling that follows. Um, We see the federal government agreeing on Yucca Mountain, but uh, folks representing Nevada um, appealing that decision. And um, this sort of spends a lot of time in the courts, and in 2004, the US Court of Appeals dismisses all but one of the grounds for appeal of this sort of siting of a nuclear waste facility. Um, but it, that single ground that it says is valid, it's that the 10,000-year standard wasn't good enough. Um, so more studying produces a new standard, and that standard is a million years. And then we see new disagreements all but ending the project, so it's basically shut down by the Department of Energy in 2009 um, when it asked to withdraw its application for a license for the project which had been being considered by another agency called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm telling you all of these things in order to give you a sense of some of the, the bureaucracy and the politics of thinking about decisions that have you know, material impacts on landscapes we've been thinking about. Um, There's more back and forth about whether you're allowed to withdraw your request uh, for a license and then in January 2013 um, we see a report outlining a brand new timeline to identify a new site um, and to have it operational by 2048. So uh, as of a couple of years ago it didn't seem like Yucca Mountain was on the table Um, but then In 2014, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission releases another sort of volume in this sort of growing series that's basically a big safety report about Yucca Mountain, and they conclude that Yucca Mountain, as proposed, would or potentially could meet this new one-million-year standard. Um, And that's, of course, only the first part of the process, and there are plenty of actors who continue to oppose the project. Um, but we've seen new developments just this year. So over the summer, the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House of Representatives voted to proceed with a bill that would move the Yucca Mountain Project further along. And part of these conversations were also about interim storage, right, which is necessary as we continue to work to, to devise appropriate and, I'd hope, equitable ways to store the spent material we already have. So this question of how and where to store and secure spent nuclear material is certainly... Um, scientific, but it's also political, right? And this is something that we've seen recur in our discussions about environmental history, right? All this non-environmental stuff shapes how we navigate environmental challenges. And the history of nuclear America is deeply tangled up with American environmental history, right? In, in far more ways than I could ever imagine covering in a single lecture. Um, so today we talked about the baby tooth survey, we talked about testing itself, and we talked about <coughs> Uh, ideas concerning the containment of American nuclear waste, right? Which are three examples all connected to a very particular place and landscape, right? The Nevada Test Site. Um, in order to help us keep thinking about the significance of narrative framing for the kinds of stories we choose to tell about the past and the present, um, focusing on baby teeth, right, instead of Bert the turtle, to examine risk in a nuclear age foregrounds maybe a different set of actors or concerns. The same could be said of the history of the test site. If we center our story on the tests themselves, um, what do we see that we might not see if our only focus was on Cold War diplomacy and brinksmanship? And the evolving story of Yucca Mountain, which we talked about really only briefly, right, brings us back to this question of the scale of our stories. Right? Is this a story about 30 years of politics or about 10,000 years of containment or a million years of imagined risk or safety? All of these stories offer a window onto nuclear America onto ideas about contested spaces and their uses, about risk and safety, and about the sometimes hard to see connections between people and the natural world. So I'm gonna stop there, but when we pick up tomorrow, we're gonna return to what we might imagine to be the more traditional territory of American environmental history, Right, you're reading an excerpt from Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, you're looking at the text of the Wilderness Act of 1964, and we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the growing science of ecology in the middle of the 20th century. And I'm going to ask you to try to put that history in conversation with today's material, especially this idea of baby teeth and risk, um, as a way to keep examining which stories, right, which histories... Um, whose stories and whose histories perhaps we draw on to examine this interconnected uh, history of bodies, of landscapes, and American relationships with nature. So I will see you tomorrow. All
4: right. All right. Yeah, why do we not do this every day? I would like to be clapped for all time. Join us every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. and midnight eastern as we join students in college classrooms to hear lectures on topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. Lectures in History are also available as podcasts. Visit our website, cspan.org history podcasts, or download them from iTunes.